You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and verse 26. I want to preach to you a message I've entitled, A Frail Church. A Frail Church. My wife was out for blood. Mandy used to work for a blood bank. She had quotas for how much blood she needed to recruit at each blood drive. If she was getting close to that quota, and I hadn't given blood in some time, I'd get a phone call. One day, having no lunch and very little water, I received such a phone call. I came, gave blood, and then went to relax in a recovery area on the bus that they have. As I lay there, all of a sudden... I felt a flash of heat. I began to tremble and sweat. The room spun a little. Mandy and her friend Ansley looked back at me and I was pale in the face. They rushed over with ice, a sweet treat, and a Sprite, and they refreshed me. That's the closest I have ever come to passing out, and it terrified me. I did not like it one bit. I fear our church always and steadily creeps to such a state spiritually. We lose our spiritual vitality. We're alive, we're existing, but we're not awake. We're breathing but not really living. God's way of refreshing us generally comes through spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are consistent acknowledgments of our own outer and inner poverty and God's infinite riches and goodness. Lord willing, we will contemplate one spiritual discipline today. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobeyed and sinned against God. Thereby, by their sinning, they broke communion or relationship with God and all of humanity, including you and I, we came under God's curse. However... God gave a gospel there in Genesis chapter 3. God promised us a seed, an offspring, an ancestral line, a descendant who would reverse the curse. This descendant would remove the consequences of sin and restore communion or relationship with God. Then, in Genesis chapter 4, we see the effect 
of breaking communion or relationship with God. And here's the effect. Human relationships fracture. Human fellowships fracture. Cain, out of jealous anger, kills his own brother Abel. So Cain, the one son that's left of Adam and Eve, surely cannot be the promised line. He surely cannot be the descendant who would reverse the curse that's on all of us. So now what? Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Adam was intimate with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Here's why. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Verse 26, we'll pause and read it in a moment. It's equally fascinating. Here's what I want you to write down in your notes. I'm going to build this as we go along. So it's important you see the foundations of this. Number one, Eve perceived the faithfulness of God. All right? Eve recognized God's faithfulness to her and to us here. Eve says literally in this... God has given me another, it says child in some of our translations. Other translations will say seed or offspring. It is going back to God's promises in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to give you a seed or offspring. And so right here in this verse, she's using the same exact terminology that God had just used previously in Genesis chapter 3. She is echoing God's word of gospel promise. He is making good on His word to me. He is faithful to me. He is faithful to His word. He is faithful to His promise. And so she named her son Seth. The word Seth, the name Seth means granted or appointed. Granted or appointed. Because in Seth, she saw him as God's replacement or substitute for Abel and his ancestral line. She recognized that this boy, Seth, is God's fulfillment, a part of God's fulfillment to keep this promise going. Now watch this. Look at verse 26, just the first half. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. Everybody say Enosh, if you will. Very good. Number two. Number two, I want to let me put a couple of things together, then I'll let you fill it in. Seth named his son Enosh, which in Hebrew, I've studied it the best I can, is very much like the word or name Adam. Okay? So Enosh and Adam, all right, his great grandfather, have very similar names, but there's just a smidge of difference. A smidge of difference between them, and not just the spelling. Listen to Psalm 8-4. Write this down. Now, this psalm wouldn't be written until many, many, many years later, but it will show you at least the little bit of difference between them. In Psalm 8-4, the psalmist says, What is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? 
Now, in this first line, he says, what is a human being? The word there is Enosh. What is a Enosh? What is a human being that you would remember him? And then it says, a son of man, which is literally Adam. A son of Adam that you would look after him. Can I tell you just a real quick funny story? On, on uh, January 1... I was having devotions with Scotland, and they were going to, this book is going to take Scotty through Genesis to Revelation. Boy, I can't wait for the end of the year of 2020 when I get to explain Revelation to Scotland. She's three years old, by the way. And so I'm trying to tell her that the translation we were using, like here, says, and God created human beings in their image. Now, mind you, I don't know if y'all are like us, uh, for lunch on, on uh, New Year's, we had the traditional you know, collard greens and black-eyed peas. Amen? Yeah. Well, my, my daughter did not like the beans, the peas. So I said, uh, you know, Scotty, that uh, human being here, you're, you're a human being. I'm not a human being. I said, oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. Daddy didn't say bean. He said being. You're a human being. Oh. I am not a human being. I hate human beings. <laughs> I, I just closed in prayer again. I was like, man, I, I don't know what to do. I, I'm trying my best, y'all. Enosh, it does mean man like Adam, but here's the hint of difference, and you can write this down. Seth perceived the frailty of humanity. The frailty of it. The mortality of it. Do you catch it? We don't live forever anymore, do we? We've broken communion with God. We're subject to disappointment, decay, and death. And so what Eve perceives is the faithfulness of God. And Seth comes along, and when he looks, he doesn't look at God, but he looks at his son. And while his son may have been a beautiful boy, what reminded him about humanity was that we're frail. We're weak. We're not who we once were in communion with God. Now, I want you to meditate with me this morning on the, def- on the difference between Seth's ancestry... Uh, Enosh, here in Genesis chapter 4, and Cain's ancestry in Genesis chapter 4. It's given to us. Let's go back up to verse 17. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. This is fascinating. I want to read it all to you and get ready. It's got some of those biblical avoid. I'm going to do my best, all right? Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Not the same Enoch that you'll read about later. This is a different one. Then Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. Arad was born to Enoch. Arad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Adah and the other named Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of the nomadic herdsman, a glorified shepherd in some way. Verse 21, his brother was named Jubal. He was the father of all who played the lyre and the flute. He made instruments. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. 
Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. Now look at verse 23 and 24, really unusual. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me. A young man, the idea is like a lad for striking me. You see this? So he gets wounded by a younger man. And what does Lamech do? Say it. Murdered him. Killed him. This is, this is a little different from self-defense. This isn't justice. This is vengeful murder. And then look at how he taunts God. Verse 24. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over. Now, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. After Cain killed Abel... Cain was worried about reprisals. What if Adam and Eve have more children? And what if their children come after me, God, to avenge the death of Abel? And so God, as he's meeting out judgment on Cain, banishing him from Adam and Eve and from their family, he says this, I'm going to put a mark over you, and if anybody harms you, I'll, I'll avenge you seven times. Do you see that? God puts a grace of protection on him, even in the midst of his judgment and banishment. But look how cocky and arrogant and self-confident uh, his great-great-great-grandson Lamech was. Notice this in the last half of verse 24. Then for Lamech... It will be 77 times. Notice what he boasts in. He's saying, so Cain kills Abel out of jealous anger, and God gives him a protection. He goes, I went and killed a young man for striking me, for merely wounding me. God must really bless me. Let's put this into perspective about Cain and his ancestral line. Cain was unable to accept God's decision and rose up against his brother Abel. Notice how Cain and his ancestral line continually raised themselves up and over against God and others. While not the promised line, Cain is clearly not the promised descendant. They were all kinds of builders, founders, inventors, right? Invented music, new ways to live, (laughs) right? Technological advances. And while God judged Cain, he was gracious to Cain. And while God would judge Cain's ancestral line, they were rebellious, God continued to bless them. Do you see the good that happens in their lives? They advance civilization But listen to this, they only advance it in one sense, in one dimension. For all their advances, none of them restrain sinful desire. None of the cities they built, none of the music they made, none of the uh, weapons that they forged, none of it restrained evil. Do you see that? If you look at the names of Cain's ancestry in verses 17 and 18, you'll notice that some of them have that ending suffix L, E-L. That is the name for God. It basically refers to God as creator God or God in general. And you see that name, Mahujael? Mahujael? It literally means blot out that jaw or Jehovah is God. Blot him out. 
These were godless men. Now here's what I want you to think about. While they were godless men, they were gifted men. They experienced the goodness of God and the blessings of God, but they were still godless. And I want you just to see this. This is the way of secular culture has been throughout humanity. We experience the good gifts of God. We apply the resources of the earth to all of our problems. But I want you to see this. All of our technological and cultural advances cannot eradicate sin and bring God's power to our life. But there's more to the other ancestry. Eve perceived God's faithfulness Seth perceived man's frailty, and notice what happened because they put those two things together, the faithfulness of God and the frailty of man. You wanted to, you want, you're ready to hear what cities they build? Are you ready? You ready to hear what they invent? You ready to see their technological advancements? What are they going to give society? Are you ready? Look at the last half of verse 26. At that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. Number three, Enosh proceeded to pray. That's what they have to offer. We are going to pray and proclaim the name of God. That's what we'll be known for in all the earth. Kenneth Matthews beautifully captures the significance of men beginning to call upon the name of Yahweh. Cain's firstborn and successors pioneer cities and civilized art, but Seth's firstborn and successors pioneer worship. They pioneer worship. Prayer, now put this together, this is where it begins to help you. Prayer is the product of the faithfulness of God and the frailty of man. When you understand how, God, how good God is to His Word and how weak and impoverished you are, you know what the product will be? You will get on your knees and call out to Him. Prayer is how we rely on God. I'll say it again. Prayer. Praying is how We rely on God. When we realize we are powerless to do anything, we are filled with the sense of our own nothingness, and then consider the infinite power and greatness of our God, we should burst into prayer. We are weak, oh, but He is strong. We are frail, but He is faithful, so let us pray. Prayer is a cry of acknowledging God's infinite goodness and our self-helplessness. So what? What is that story? What does Cain and Seth, Eve and Enosh have to do with you and I in 2020? Cain and his ancestry disappears from biblical pages without one positive mention of prayer, worship, or devotion to the God of Israel, Yahweh. Notice out of all the contributions they make, make significant contributions to civilization, 
But the one thing that's needful, did you hear that? The one thing that matters, the one thing that will outlast your life had nothing to do with this family. This is the truth I want you to take home. Write it down. Our take-home truth. Take this with you. Leave this place today with this burned into your soul. Prayerlessness betrays our faith. Prayerlessness betrays our faith. Wow. Prayer is how we rely on God. Remember? Praying is how we rely on God. If we're not praying, therefore we're not what? Trusting God. We're not relying on God. We may say we have faith, but we don't really practice our faith. Examine yourself. Test yourself this morning. Question A. Is your faith in yourself or God? Is your faith in yourself? Are you confident that you've got what it takes to handle life? If you are that confident, odds are you are not a praying person. But when you come to the end of yourself and see the frailty of your own existence, you will get down on your knees and pray. And can I, think, can I tell you something, Christians, that's hypocritical on our part? And I like how Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, put it. Think about this. If you can trust God with your soul, you must of necessity trust Him with your prayers. Have you ever thought about that? God, I have no problem entrusting my eternal soul into your hands, but this matter over here in my life, I've got to be concerned and worried all about it. That's who we are. We'll trust God with spiritual things. Hey, He is sovereign over everything. He rules over and overrules all. And when we have no control, right, the best thing, the only thing we should be doing is what? Pray. Rely on Him. B, question B. Do you feel your frailty? I think we cognitively assent. We know in our minds God is good and faithful and infinite. I think where we fall short is we don't feel our own frailty. We don't think that we're frail. The Bible instructs us, let me remind you about who you are, that we exist, live, and move in God. Your existence is owed to God. Your life is owed to God. You moving, getting in here this morning is owed to God. We cannot draw a breath without God's aid. We continually stand in need of God for supply of our physical needs. I want you to know, whether you had breakfast or you're about to have lunch, whatever is placed on the table in front of you actually came from the hands of God. Consider the continual spiritual needs of your soul. Without God's protection, listen to me, church, you will immediately fall into the hands of the devil. If God took his hand away and let the devil do what he wants, he'd have all of us. If God were to forsake you this very moment, you would immediately fall away. You would never resist your sin and uh, evil desires. No more. You and I are frail. So shouldn't we pray unceasingly? Why does prayer matter now to the church, though? 
I just talked about it kind of as individuals, and then we're adding up. But why does prayer matter to Mount Carmel, all of us together as one body, one group? Because church, I'm going to let you know if you're visiting today, I want to tell you something about Mount Carmel. We're a frail church. We're a very frail church. We don't have power. We have no ability. Some of you are like, wow, what a great way to talk about your church. It's simply a way to say this. Our church has to pray. We have to pray. A prayerless church is a godless church. A prayerless church is a godless church. Why? Praying is relying on God. I hope you want to come to a church that's desperately dependent upon God. Right? Well, if you want to find that church, you want to go to a church that's desperately dependent upon God, they're going to tell you two things. We are frail, so we pray. We have no power, so we pray. The great provocateur and encourager of prayer, E.M. Bounds, said this, without prayer... A church is like a body without spirit. It is dead, an inanimate thing. A church with prayer in it has God in it. You must be a frail church to be a God church. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, if God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens or signs of his absence will be a slothfulness or a laziness in prayer. That scares me, Mount Carmel. Are you ready? Can I go ahead and give you the most burning thing today? And don't fire me. E.M. Bounds. I like to put hard things in the words of people long dead and gone. He died in 1913, and he wrote this about the state of the church. In spite of the benefits, we know them, the blessings which flow from communion with God, prayer, the sad confession must be made. We are not praying much. A very small number, and he's talking about churches, comparatively lead in prayer at the meetings, at church meetings. Fewer still pray in their families, and I'm not talking about just over the meals. Fewer still are in the habit of praying regularly in their closets, in secret, just personal devotions. Meetings, especially for prayer, prayer meetings are as rare as the frost in June. In many churches, there is neither the name nor the semblance of a prayer meeting. In the town and city churches, the prayer meeting in name is not a prayer meeting. In fact, in church, Mount Carmel, this can be us. A sermon, a sermon or a lecture is the main feature. Well, if Josh isn't, if he's not preaching or teaching, we don't come. Hey, church, it's okay for us to come and do one thing but pray. If that can't get the saints motivated, we're in for it. Hey, we're not going to make it. I need you to get that. Because we are a frail church. Prayer is the nominal attachment. Prayer, we're going to have prayer in Bible study. And you show up and it's Bible study. Stop calling in a prayer meeting. 
Our people are not essentially a praying people. This is evident by their lives. We have to pray. Who, how, and where should you pray? I took this out of the sermon for you guys to save you some time, so I'm going to give you some homework. Inside your bulletin, there is an everyday prayer guide. An everyday prayer guide. And I just want to go through the, the, the main things on that. I love that you're following me, that I heard the... It was going to be so sad if it was like, there's a bulletin? <laughs> Let me tell you what I love about prayer and why I don't demean the prayer ministry and the older I get and the more time I'm, I'm pastoring. First of all, I see the significance and absolute utter need for prayer. But here's the one thing I love. Number one, even those with health issues can pray. You may not be able to gather with us, oh, but you can pray. If you're watching this online, you can pray. If you're listening to this podcast, you can pray. Wherever you're at, you can pray. To anchor prayer in Scripture, follow the Holy Spirit, and keep it simple, saint. You like that? Let's keep it simple. Pray the Lord's Prayer secretly every day. Secretly. It's important that you do it secretly. That's the test of your relationship with God. If you don't pray secretly, I'll go ahead and let you know right now, you're not a believer. I solved it for you right there. Because that's where the test of your faith is. When no one is watching and only God is your witness, will you talk to him? Four, pray with your family every day. I went down to the next gen room and asked the kids about their moms and dads praying. Are you ready for the responses? I'm just lying to you. Do you want to know what your kids think about prayer? Would it scare you to know what they think about prayer? What did they learn from you about prayer? Five, pray the Great Commission and for unity in your church every day. I find it fascinating that one of the last things Jesus prayed in the garden before going to the cross, oh, pray that the church would be one. And then he gave us the Great Commission after his resurrection, that we would go baptize teach and learn and obey. And pray for the lost, baptisms and discipleships every day. It scares me to think, what if people aren't saved in our churches and what if our churches aren't baptizing simply because we've just not asked God? God, would you save people in our services? God, would you baptize people in our services? What if we just have not asked them? And then I want to ask you, Will you pray for me? Will you pray for me? On the back of that sheet, I gave you that sermon prep prayer team. I started this a year ago, and it has made, I believe, a phenomenal difference, I know, in my life as a pastor. And it's a once-a-week commitment at a time of your choosing to pray for me during an hour of my sermon preparation. You don't have to pray the whole hour. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm just saying during that hour, would you pause and pray for me? Set an alarm. Most of the people who do it, they set an alarm. They realize, oh, Josh is prepping right now. I'm going to pray for him. And you can sign up. If you want to be a part of that prep team, there's a little uh, poster board on a table in the foyer over to my right, your left. Go sign up. Give me your name. Select an hour. 
of the day that you'd pray for me this week and do it every week until Jesus returns. That's how we do that. All right? I need it all the time. And then pray through that list for me. And give me your cell phone and email address because sometimes I'll blast my prayer people like, I'm struggling with this, I need your help. And they'll intercede for me. Dr. Michael Faberez put it this way, the difference between life-changing preaching and another average Sunday morning is prayer. And we cannot afford to go to church this week without it. You may be getting exactly out of this service what you put into it. E.M. Bounds. God's house is the house of prayer. Now catch what he means by that. A church that doesn't pray, God's not in it. So you want to know where God is, where he's manifesting his power? It'll be a house of, say it, prayer. God's house is the house of prayer. God's work is the work of prayer. It's tied to it. It's the means by which he works through the church. When the prayer chambers, the closets, the quiet places of saints are closed or are entered casually or coldly, then the church leaders, listen to this, he wrote this in 1913, are secular, fleshly, and materialistic. Spiritual character sinks to a low level and the ministry becomes restrained and enfeebled. When prayer fails, the world prevails. When prayer fails, the church loses its divine characteristics, its divine power. The church is swallowed up by a proud ecclesiasticism and the world scoffs at its obvious impotence. Doesn't the world do that? The church is powerless to do anything. And I tell you this, the answer is this, because our churches aren't praying. If prayer is how we rely on God and we're not praying, what does that lead to? This is a good question. If we don't pray, and therefore we cannot have any expectation or hope of God's power coming into our church, here's what happens, and you're not going to like it because it's the absolute truth. We end up relying on the godless gifts of Cain to make ministry grow. What does it become about? Buildings. The recent fad, the newest invention, the music, the technology, because that's all we have to offer. That's all humanity can dig up out of the earth. But if you want something from above, church, if you want heaven to descend on this place, you get on your knees. Do you see how that works? I don't want to run a ministry after the line of Cain. I want it to be a ministry that's after the line of Enosh. And they called on the name of the Lord their God. They made much of Jesus. That's who we have to be. We cannot replace that. And if you wonder, will it require hard work? It will require the hardest work. To pray really, this is bounds, to pray till heaven fills the heavy stroke, to pray till the iron gates of difficulty are open, till the mountains of obstacles are removed, till the mist are blown away, the clouds are lifted, and the sunshine of a cloudless day brightens. This is hard work, but it is God's work and man's best labor. 
It's the best thing. This is why I needed you to get. Why in 2020, why would you talk about prayer? The best thing that you as a church, whether I'm your pastor or not, can give yourself to is to the work of prayer. Never was the toll of hand, head, and heart less spent in vain than when praying. Isn't it true? Your hands, what do they do in prayer? Nothing really. Right? Like your, your ingenuity, your passion, in some ways I'm saying, is it's all just directed toward one person, God. And it's hard for us to fathom that. It's hard to wait and press and pray and, and here's the hard part, and hear no voice, right? Just nothing. But we're supposed to stay praying till he answers. And, I'm, and this is what excites me, church. This is what I do know. Will you stay praying with me? Because boy, if he answers, if he answers, we are a frail church, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But what does that mean? Let us pray. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.